Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed our podcasts, as evidenced by the more than 200,000 downloads to date. Thanks to you all. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening and we look forward to hearing from you. Did you know that Niagara Falls is less than 30 minutes away from downtown Buffalo? Hi from the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, I'm Peter Sabota. In this first of a two-part podcast, Dr. Shelley Weekelt and Dr. Corey Shadema bring together their areas of expertise to discuss their research into prostitution in the lives of women, including the role of trauma, substance abuse, and current policy related to this population. Doctors Weekelt and Shadema discuss how their work began attempting to make a specialized prostitution diversion program in Baltimore County, Maryland more beneficial to the women who are actually using the program. They begin by defining prostitution in the context of their work and contrasting it with terms such as sex work that are commonly used to describe this activity. Doctors Weekelt and Shadema describe what initially drew them to this work and how their desire to bring about the participant women's voices into the conversation about this diversion program inspired their work together. In this first part of their podcast, our guests describe how important it was for them to debunk popular myths surrounding prostitution and promote women's understanding about how trauma and substance abuse relate to prostitution activity. UB welcomes back our friend, Dr. Shelley Weekel. She is assistant professor at the University of Maryland Baltimore County School of Social Work. Her research interests include the interplay of shame, trauma, and substance abuse among women and Native Americans, and she's especially interested in developing collaborations between researchers and practitioners. Dr. Weekelt has extensive clinical experience. Dr. Corey Stema is assistant professor and academic coordinator for the MSWJD dual degree program at University of Maryland School of Social Work. Her research interests include professional roles in social justice, the effects of policy on low-income individuals and communities, and theory and practice models. Dr. Margaret Coombs is Regional Office Project Associate at the Office of Child and Family Services in Rochester, New York. Dr. Coombs interviewed Drs. Weekelt and Shadema by telephone. I'm Margaret Coombs at the University of Buffalo, the School of Social Work. Here to talk to me today about prostitution is Dr. Shelley Weekelt and Dr. Corey Shadema. Thank you for joining me, and this is a very exciting topic, and I know you've done an extensive amount of research, and I'm very impressed with both your backgrounds and how you've chosen to do this study together. 
it seems like you're a fabulous team with your experiences. Would you mind taking a moment and introduce yourself? My name's Shelley Weekout. I'm on the faculty at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and have done research regarding substance use and trauma in a variety of populations, and this current study is focused on prostitution. And I'm Corey Stema. I am on the faculty of the University of Maryland School of Social Work in Baltimore. My background is in law and in social work, and I'm interested in how people work around laws or policies that aren't working for them. So right now I'm looking into with Shelley a prostitution policy uh, that seems to give rise to a number of concerns, both on the part of the people who are trying to enforce it and the targets of enforcement. Great. So that legal expertise combined with child welfare policies and the substance abuse research is great for this topic and great in terms of the research uh, expanding on it and how it will affect the Department of Social Services and how policies are written in the future, hopefully. Can you give us a definition for the audience about prostitution? Sure. Prostitution is essentially exchanging sexual acts or sexual services for some kind of compensation, most typically money, but it can include drugs or other kinds of compensation such as food or housing. And prostitution can include women in street prostitution, which is often what people think about. But it can also include males. It can include transgendered people. It can include children. It can be indoor prostitution, which would be people engaged in bordello or massage parlor type prostitution, or the outdoor type, which is street prostitution. And certainly there's the high-end type of prostitution that we often think of more as call girl or escort services. Why do you use the term prostitution rather than describing it, the activity as sex work? Well, there are several reasons for that. The term sex work actually has two components to it. One is that it, it tends to encompass a broad range of activities that might not be considered prostitution or at least not the legal definition of prostitution. So sex work could include pole dancing or phone sex or things like that, and that would be encompassing sex work but would not be relevant to the population or the policies that we're looking at currently. So that broader term really doesn't work. The other thing is uh, sex work also implies level of uh, some of the feminist discourse around sex work in particular implies a, an empowerment framework. And Shelley and I certainly don't deny that there could theoretically be instances where particularly women or anyone engaged in prostitution could be doing so out of uh, their own volitional choice of how they want to use their bodies. However, that has not been the case for the population that we study. The population that we study really self-identify as people who are engaging in prostitution due to their lack of perceived choices. And so the, the feminist model of sex work really doesn't speak to the experiences of the people in our study. And lastly, the people in our study do not use the term sex work at all. We also, I would note, don't use the term prostitute because they also don't identify as prostitutes. They are people who do prostitution sometimes when necessary, right? But they don't identify that as an identity. So we use the somewhat cumbersome term people engage in prostitution or women engage in prostitution when we're referring specifically to women. So again, in terms of it's not considered for them a job, a career, it was just a lack of choices. 
Yes, and two things. They don't identify with that empowerment, and they also don't, it's not the essential of who they are. So they also wouldn't use the term prostitute so much. They, like I said, prostitution is something they do. It's not who they are. Not who they are. And I think you get into great detail about the poverty and trauma So, and some of the reasons that led them to make this decision. But anyhow, could you discuss the scope of the prostitution, the effects on the individuals, the women that you talked with, and how it's also impacted the community in Maryland in terms of why this research came about? This research came about largely due to a community task force that was focused on addressing prostitution in Baltimore City. The women in Baltimore City who were engaged in prostitution are often in the streets and in the neighborhoods, and their involvement of prostitution brings an element into the community that the neighborhood folks had some concerns about, and it also results in crack vials and needles and used condoms floating in the streets, and the community members were really kind of upset about that, and so they were voicing their concerns to community leaders, but they were recognizing that the women they were seeing that were engaged in prostitution were not really criminals in their minds that needed to be prosecuted and thrown in jail, but rather people who needed some kind of help and support in order to find a way of living that didn't involve street prostitution. So there was a coalition between these community members and a number of community leaders, including the School of Social Work here and the law school and other kinds of academics and researchers trying to come together and find ways to address this issue in Baltimore City. And our research came about because we wanted to be sure that the women's voices were heard in a discussion on what kinds of support they needed, what kinds of programs they needed, and what they thought the court needed to do to help them and support them if they thought that the court should at all. So we really wanted to bring the women's voices into the discussion, which is where our particular research project emerged from. So the community or the coalition, the community task force, understood that although the prostitution in the neighborhoods was causing some risk and safety issues, but they realized the punishment, treating these women like criminals, was not going to work. So that's what it wanted to address. Yes. And that's what you were talking about, the specialized diversion program here. Yes. Okay. So the futility, again, of punishment. It's, it's not a deterrent and that it's a vicious cycle. So what is the current legal response? Well, the current legal response to prostitution in the United States is largely criminalization, right? So prostitution is illegal in all of the states except for Nevada, and Nevada allows the counties to decide how it's going to treat prostitution, and rather tellingly, there's only one county in Nevada where prostitution is not illegal, and that is Los Angeles, and it's regulated there. And so to a large extent, the people on the task force were not necessarily looking to change the law, right, either because they didn't think it was feasible. And I have to say, I'm doing another related research project right now where we had looked at, we did surveys in the neighborhoods. There were three neighborhoods that actually had come to complain about prostitution that initiated this stakeholder group. And so in the surveys that we did in these neighborhoods, it was definitely clear that there was a significant proportion of folks who 
felt that people engaged in prostitution really needed help, it didn't necessarily mean that all of them thought that it shouldn't be criminalized. So some people thought it should be criminalized and agreed with that. Some people thought people just needed help. And then some people saw a combination. In other words, they didn't want it there. They wanted to express societal disapprobation for prostitution, but they wanted to include an element of assistance here. And so you have to look at the specialized prostitution diversion program as an attempt not to change the existing criminal justice response to prostitution in the sense of legalizing it. And I think that there were several reasons, and you had a wide stakeholder group, so some people probably didn't want to. Some people thought, yes, it would be better if prostitution was either decriminalized or made legal, but that is not feasible in the current political climate in the U.S. So there's a variety of opinions. And what we actually see is there are a number of prostitution diversion programs across the country, a very small number, and they're often related to problem-solving court model, which means that people are within the, nested within the criminal justice system, but we provide a rehabilitative response. So we don't get rid of the criminal justice aspect. To some extent, the, the threat of coercion, the threat of punishment might drive people into treatment. And of course, there's great debate about the value of these kind of therapeutic criminal justice combinations. And I myself have looked at them and have my own critiques of them. But this is the kind of thing that ended up being developed in Baltimore City. And like Shelley said, this research grew out of our own desire that in creating this new alternative response within the criminal justice system, we wanted to know, well, what did the women who were likely to be participants in this program, what were they worried about? Were they concerned about this being a court-based rehabilitative process? What did they hope to find from this? What kind of services would they want? Really just get their sense of what were their hopes or fears or concerns regarding this. So you're talking, again, the stakeholders in Baltimore and their understanding of what they saw the issue is and what they were hoping to accomplish. Can you tell me a little about the research with these women engaged in prostitution, how it came about? Can you explain a little more how you got involved with the actual women? Yeah, on the stakeholder committee, actually, at various times, there were a representative of groups that work with women engaged in prostitution, and there was an attempt, um, one of the meetings we did actually have a woman who herself engaged in prostitution come and address the stakeholder committee, but there were not voices of actual people engaged in prostitution on a regular basis. And so it was our decision to actually, in order to get those voices, we would actually have to go out into the community. And that's one of the things that as a researcher, you can do and you know how to do. Shelley and I reached out to one of the groups that had attended these stakeholder committees, a group called YANA, uh, You Are Never Alone, and they provide uh, drop-in services for... What a great name. Yeah. Yes. Yana. Yeah. Yes. And they, at the time, I, I think have changed since then, but at the time they had a place called Yana Place, and women could come into Yana Place on a drop-in basis, either to talk or to clean themselves or to have some food or if they wanted some kind of services to get some help. There was also a, a nurse who was there once a week. And so we reached out to the executive director who had sat on the stakeholder committee and asked her if we could conduct research at Yana Place with women engaged in prostitution. So that's actually how we have access to the women in our study. Wow. That was excellent that you were able to engage them and you were able to get into a place that they're willingly coming to, right? That's a voluntary, Yana, you're never alone. Exactly. It's, it's by choice that they go there. So they weren't being coerced into going into that. 
center. Exactly. So you could e more easily engage them. Yes, exactly. And so it also wouldn't be, yes, exactly. So they're voluntarily, and it's also a space where they feel safe and comfortable in working with this population. We were very concerned. We didn't want to re-traumatize anybody. We didn't want to. So we knew that this space was also a safe space for the women who were there and the people who ran it, the staff, the volunteer staff also provide services and support and having them present and having knowing that the women had access to them should our research raise any our questioning raise any concerns for them was another positive aspect of that particular research site. Great. So it sounds like it was a safe place for them to talk, but also somehow you established some trust with the executive director and the women coming to the center. Yes, we spent some time with the executive director as well as with the other staff so that they could get to know us and we could have an understanding of what they would like for us to do in the agency and what they thought the issues and concerns were and what was the best way to approach the women. And we also met with the women in advance of our study to let them know who we were and have their input on how they felt about us being there and how they felt we should approach the other women. So we really had a lot of input from the community members themselves people who both worked at and used the agency in order to best fit in there. And then we went to the agency regularly every week and we just hung out and did pitched in and did things in the agency. We helped people pick clothes and made coffee and ate soup together and brought in donuts and really got the women to have an opportunity to get a sense of who we were. And oftentimes, the women would just approach us and say, I'd like to do your interview now, after they got to know us a while. So it was really important for them to see that we were there in a way that was not exploitive of them or not going to be harmful for them and that we cared about who they were and what their experience was and we really wanted to tell their story. And by establishing that trust, and being present in the agency in order to do it, it uh, really facilitated our ability to hear their stories, which was really our main goal, was to know their views and their perspectives about what they thought they needed and who they were and what their experiences were. Yeah, and, I, and I'll just add something. When we were in, that's telling, when we were going to them initially to vet our methods, so like Shelley said, before we even started the research, we sat with a group of women who were at the agency one day on a drop-in and we said, can we ask kind of questions? What should we do? And that was before we even submitted it to the IRB because we wanted their input on the design. So one of the questions we asked is, is it okay to ask about this? And they basically said to us, you can ask us anything you want as long as you are genuine and we will know it. We can read you and we know if you are approaching us with an open heart and open mind. And if you do, then we'll talk to you and it's okay to ask anything. So that, I think, was very telling. And we took that to heart quite a bit. And it also helped us. Being at the agency wasn't just instrumental, okay, people can get to know us so they'll talk to us. It also helped us in our interpretation of the findings. If you spend a lot of time in a setting, you learn a lot more that isn't might not come across an interview that's face-to-face, -face, taken out of the environment a little bit. So it was very helpful in that as well. And I think the fact that you went there weekly and you did demonstrate that you cared about them and you wanted to hear their stories. And like you said, it may have helped you interpret the data. It may have helped you understand what they're saying to a degree that you can give that information back to the stakeholders in terms of what these women were experiencing. You started to talk about what they would like. Can you tell me what were the goals of the research and 
the rationale for each? Well, the main one, like I said, was really to inform the stakeholder committee. At the time when Shelley and I started our research, the Specialized Prostitution Diversion Program had not yet started. The stakeholder committee had been meeting for almost two years at that point, but they hadn't actually started, and that was actually our hope, to give input to the committee about the kind of services people would want or their needs. And in truth, we didn't even know on the stakeholders committee who was it that was on the prostitution docket, who were going to be the people participating in the program. There wasn't that much known about them as well. And so to understand what were the experiences of the people who would be likely offered this diversion program ahead of time so that we could have a better understanding of who would be in the program, what would their needs be, and also what concerns might they have about the provision of these court-based services, and then to take that information both back to the stakeholder committee and also hopefully to, to be part of the larger dialogue of these kind of problem-solving programs in the criminal justice system that were being designed for people engaged in prostitution. And we also wanted to understand the women's experience of trauma and substance abuse because we thought that that was important to inform how an approach and intervention should occur. There's a great deal in the research literature about substance abuse and women in prostitution, and certainly anecdotally people often speak about women engaging in prostitution because they're on drugs and they need to get the money to support their drug habit, and that's sort of the the mythology that we talk about in terms of women in prostitution is being sort of low-fallen women who are drug addicts or alcoholics. And if we just fix their addiction problem, then they won't need to engage in prostitution. And people sort of have that notion about prostitution. And we looked into the literature and tried to understand what the actual research says about substance use and women in prostitution. And certainly the research literature does support that there's a strong association between substance abuse and prostitution. However, it's not clear exactly when the substance use begins to occur. Is it that women begin to use substances, develop an addiction, and engage in prostitution? Or is it that the vagaries of prostitution push them into using substances as a means to numb and cope and manage their involvement in prostitution. And some researchers have even found that the engagement in prostitution and substance abuse occur simultaneously. So it's, although it's strongly associated, it's an unsettled issue as to exactly how it's associated with women in prostitution. So we wanted to have an understanding of our women's experience of substance use. And the other thing that people often speak about is childhood sexual abuse as being a precursor to prostitution. And we wanted to understand was childhood sexual abuse a part of our women's experience, but even beyond that, we wanted to understand how was trauma, traumatic experiences across the lifespan experienced by women in our sample, because we know that trauma and substance use in the general research shows that there's a strong association between trauma and substance abuse. And we were thinking that there is a kind of complex relationship between prostitution, trauma, and substance abuse. And so we wanted to begin to understand that in our population. And certainly the research literature that exists supports that women in prostitution have high levels of trauma. But the notion that childhood sexual abuse leads to prostitution, some research supports that, some research doesn't. Some research says that there are mediating or moderating variables such as 
woman experienced childhood sexual abuse, ran away as a teenager, and engaged in prostitution. So the mediator there is the runaway behavior. So it's much more complicated than simply saying women in prostitution used a lot of drugs and had childhood sexual abuse. So we wanted to understand how that operated with women in our community and what we needed to consider in terms of trauma and substance use in the development of any programming or court-based program on their behalf. And it's so complex. And I think it's some of those myths that are out there also that, yes, most women go into prostitution to keep their substance abuse uh, habit or to maintain their substance abuse. But there's also some glamorizing about prostitution, like pretty woman or things that are in the media. But it's so complex in terms of whether or not these women have been traumatized or most have had trauma or whether it's related to any sexual abuse in the past. But it sounds like you were very willing to take your gloves off and get into that with each of them to hear each of their stories about the trauma and substance, which came first in terms of substance abuse or prostitution. And you were really willing to hear each of their stories, kind of to depict how complex it can be for each woman and whether or not it is a choice or survival. Absolutely. We were very interested in hearing each of their stories and understanding what brought them into prostitution and what maintained them in prostitution. And certainly we were respectful of their choice as to whether they wanted to continue to engage in prostitution or not. But we really learned from our women that many of them experienced their involvement with prostitution as a mechanism of a survival, as a way of getting housing and getting food and maintaining themselves in the community. Can you talk about your sample? Because some of them talked about entering prostitution at ages 13, older, 36 years old. Most of the women you interviewed were between 22 and 55. Can you talk a little more about how many or the women that you met? We had 17 women in our sample, and yes, they did range in age from 22 to 55. And we weren't able to get demographics on all of them. Those that have participated in our focus groups only, we weren't able to get demographics on. But for those 11 that we had long, detailed interviews with, five were Caucasian and six were African American. And they, their education ranged from 9 to 15 years. Five had some high school, three had GED, and three had some college. And their first engagement in prostitution ranged from age 13 to 36. Wow. That's so young. I mean, it's hard to believe someone would have to make that decision at 36, that that's how you could make your money or how you would survive. Yeah, I would say we were probably very surprised at the age range, also at the upper age range, that there are still people in their 50s who are engaging in prostitution, especially with all of the survival concerns, how difficult the dangers and the risks that are involved with all of the concerns that they were still surviving and out there doing this. And I have also looked at, I'm doing another project looking at the who's coming into the specialized prostitution diversion program, and I'm looking at another program in another northeastern city that they don't want to be identified. And I would say that the age range and the racial breakdown and the years of education I'm finding in my other sample as well. And that other sample includes a total of another about 25 women. And so it's not just our sample, that it does seem to be what we're finding, at least, again, this is street-level prostitution. With, it seems to be fairly representative of the women who are on the docket. So those are the people who are arrested for prostitution. 
So it was similar in, in the sense that these women are of all ages? Of all ages and that there is a range of educational backgrounds and the racial breakdown seems to be fairly even in Baltimore and in the other city which has similar racial demographics about the same as well. You've been listening to Dr. Shelley Weekelt and Dr. Corey Shadema discuss substance abuse and trauma in the lives of women in prostitution on Living Proof. Be sure to watch for part two of their podcast coming soon. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.